This is OTB Sports Radio, Thursday Night Football with John Giles. When you lose a big match like that, you have to suck that up. Mm. But to go into a dressing room and say you're celebrating to be disrespectful, I mean, who is Mourinho to talk about disrespect? The best analysis of all the week's football from Ireland's number one football man. Pogba's a social media star, right? He appeals to the young people now, he does his dance, he has his hair and all that. That's all he's worried about, in my opinion. Not worried about being a great player, Nathan. John Giles. Every Thursday at 7.30pm on OTB Sports Radio, live 24-7 on the Go Loud app. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB Gold. The very best of off the ball. You're listening to OTB Gold. That is a collection of some of our very best stuff since the beginning of off the ball. Now... This man is one of the biggest characters in the GAA. And back in 2017, Joe sat down with Gerlock Nan to reminisce about his career and discuss the misunderstanding that led to people to believe that he passed away. OTB Gold. Gerlock Nan, delighted to do this in person. One of the things we had to sort out when we were organising this interview is to work around your hunting schedule. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't realise you had such a passion for hunting. Yeah, you may mean, I suppose hunting was my first passion. It was the first thing I started out with when I was very young, from when I was about, I'd say, five or six years of age. I hunted maybe for 10 years then, till I was 16, 17, till I got on the Clare Miners. And really after that, hurling took over. And the strange thing about it was I didn't hunt for over, over 30 years. And then a cousin of mine asked me one day, when I was finished with Clare, actually, in 2000, he asked me, would I go back just for one day, you know, just to yeah. give him a hand out. So I went back anyway. Reluctantly, I went back and uh, I wasn't back five minutes and I was hooked again. It was like somebody going back, a drug addict going back on drugs. So <laughs> I've been addicted ever since. What is it? What is it? Well, like, what's your typical day of hunting? It is very, very strange, like, to explain to people what it is, because it is hunting, which has nothing to do with killing, because the last thing you want to do with the type of hunting we do is to kill. It is basically you start off maybe 10 o'clock in the morning, which are hounds, which are harriers. Um, different people would have a different number of hounds. So between all of us, when we'd meet on the Sunday, for example, we'd have maybe 25, 30 hounds. So the thing is to get up a hare and then hunt the hare maybe for an hour and a half, two hours. The hare will either beat the dogs then or else you'll stop the dogs, one or the other, because you need to have the hares the next day you come back. So... Uh, sometimes it would be foxes, either foxes or hares, and that would go on then until dark. So you're going over ditches and over walls and over trenches, and uh, it's um, it's it's like a match lasting for eight hours rather than the hour and a half. You know, you get to say the thrill you get out of it. It has to be in your blood, I think. And right. it, it's something you like, like all of those minor sports, I suppose. It's something you can't explain to anybody else. You know, people who do engage in things like fishing and shooting, and you know, all of the minor sports that are never covered on radio or television they, they are totally dedicated to those sports you mm-hmm. know and uh, the, the people I hunt with the, that is their main sport and yeah. for me it's my pastime and I, I just love it you know for the winter and it's, it's in winter time as well which is the great thing about it and then you have of course the whole you have the GA season yeah. then for the summer so it's great if you forgive my <laughs> urban sensibilities it's not in my blood I would look at it from afar and I would think, God, the poor hair, terrified. For yeah, well, we had, there, there, were, there were a group uh, that did a, a program on it last year for TG Cahar at the end of last year. And it was, they were, nearly all of them were from, from, from Dublin, they were in a, from the city. Yeah. And when they came down first, uh, you know, when they came down that day, they were afraid of their life. Every hair was going to get killed. And as the day went on, 
they realized that the hare was in very little danger, that the hare was in control, you know, because the hare will run roads and walls and mud and go backwards and forwards. Like it takes a terrific, uh, it, it takes a pack of hounds to actually get near a hare, to wear out a hare. Right. And, he, uh, and the other occasion when they do, Everybody knows when the hare is getting tired, and it's very, very easy to stop the hounds then. So it's all about the hunt. It's the test of the hounds, their cry, their, their, how they can follow the scent. You know, it, it is something that, as I say, an outsider or somebody like yourself, Joe, yeah. you, you, you wouldn't see what the sense was in it, what no. the thrill was in it. But I suppose, like everything else, it's anything you start off with, I think. You know, whatever you start off with in life, you know, when you start as a very young kid, I think you you always have a feel for that sport. You always that sport is always in your blood, yeah. you know. And I suppose you did it with your father. <coughs> I, presume, I did it with you? my father, yeah, and with the neighbours around. And we always had hounds, the harriers at home, and the thrill was going off on Sunday mornings that time. We go more often now, of course, but Sunday was the only day they had off that time. And all the people, you know, many people who never hunted would keep harriers, would keep a, a beagle as they called them, and. All of those hounds, they'd know when Sunday came and one man then in the, vill- in, the t- in the village would blow the hunting horn and you'd see these hounds collecting from all directions and they'd come and they'd follow him then on to where the hunt was going to take place. It's, it was a, it's, it's a ritual that has, you know, w- with time, I suppose, it has almost vanished. But it is very, very strong here in Clare, very strong in South Kerry. Jack O'Shea would have done it when he was young now, the, the footballer. Extremely strong in Cork, which is it's mostly fox hunting, Limerick. Then Mickey Quinn, who was a great Leitrim footballer, you know, that one of their only they have only two All Stars. He's he is a fanatic on it up in <laughs> up in Leitrim. So you get to know all these people from all over the country. So yeah. it has a social aspect as well as the sporting as- aspect, and you know we just love it. Yeah. Do you keep dogs yourself? Do you own yeah, dogs? Yeah, I have uh, fourteen now at the moment. Fourteen Harriers. Right. Yeah, yeah. Are you yeah. cleaning up after them and uh, yeah, them every and, day. Right. Like every day, you have to go out to them, clean up, feed them. You know, um, uh, keep an eye on them if they get sick or you bring them to the vet all that kind of stuff so it is uh, it, it is time consuming but it's a labour of love, love really you know mm. and it's even therapeutic to go out to the dogs in the evening you know, it's, it's lovely I can imagine and yeah. I guess you do have time now that you're retired as a principal as a school teacher that is the strange thing about retiring you know when people say you're retired uh, you say oh yeah how do you pass the day well every day there is something on every day you know I'm doing something every day so yeah. would you go uh, stir crazy if you were sat at home I suppose you would adjust to a slower pace after a while, but uh, the life I have now is the best. This is the best era I've had because, you know, all when I was teaching, I was usually involved with a team or, you know, so it was really crazily busy, busy. Whereas now, even though you're busy all day, it's not the same rush about it. Or there's not the same, um, th- th- you're not meeting the deadlines that you were meeting before. So it's, lo- it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, or being criticised. Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't mind that. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start teaching? Started teaching in Chapel Lizard in Dublin in 1973. Right. I started teaching in Dublin in, in Chapel Lizard. I spent a year there in Chapel Lizard. Yeah. And then, you know, because of going up and I, I actually intended to go on to UCD, but I had just started on the Clare team. And of course, you know, the pressure of every weekend was mm. up and down, either club matches or county matches. So 
then I uh, came down and I taught in Shannon so I, I, I've been in Shannon I was in Shannon teaching for almost 40 years right. in Shannon was yeah. that secondary or primary primary Primary. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, principal of a school there for over 30 years in Shannon. When you look back on Gerlach uh, Nan, the teacher in the 70s, would you shudder to look back at his methods or was he uh, well equipped at the start? Did you change your philosophy much over the years? Well, I'll just give you an idea. When I started off in, in St. Connor's School in Shannon, I was teaching in a dressing room in the GA club in uh, Wolf Tones because, you know, Shannon was expanding at such a rapid rate that the schools weren't being built to correspond with the increase in population. So I taught in a dressing room, and when you come in in the morning, I had 48 p- children in, in first class. Now, you can imagine that in a dressing room. And every morning we come in, the dressing room would have been used the night before, either people talking out the training or people would go in there from the bar of the of, of, of Wolf Tones and they'd sit down and the, the glasses would be left around. So we'd have to take out the glasses, sweep out the floor. There was only a half a window you could open, so there'd be dust all over the place. Bring in the desks and the chairs and try and squash in 48 first-class children into a dressing room. And I spent there one day. So I remember when the inspector <laughs> came. The inspector came to me one day. Uh, it was around half one, you know, the afternoon when the children are claustrophobically you close it and the heat is terrible inside in the dressing room yeah. and uh, I shall listen there's only try, there's crowd control you know but this uh, this one young fella uh, he said that he, he do some bit Irish or something so he, he said of say something anyway and a young lad from, he was just after coming from England and he said to him who are you he said and you met the inspector turned to me and said, oh, he said, you have a bit of a job here, all right. He said, he didn't, he didn't, there was no more questioning. He was got out the door as fast as he could. <laughs> but we survived it. And it became a great, like, uh, we moved on to uh, another yeah. school in Shannon. And did you enjoy I the did. Act of teaching? I, I absolutely loved teaching. Whatever buzz there was in teaching, it was, and I loved teaching the boldest young lads in the play. They came in because uh, there were, we'll say, three, six classes. And I'd be given then most of the difficult children to come in to me because uh, now these would have come, we'll say, from England that have come from Northern Ireland. Uh, there were children with difficulties, you know, and with, you know, uh, huge social problems because of the troubles from which they came, especially like some of the ones from Northern Ireland. But, you know, after a bit of time, they'd settled down and it, there was terrific satisfaction in seeing how the difficult ch- children who were difficult who, when treated in a certain way, you could get the very, very best out of it. With them. kindness, I presume. Absolutely. Absolutely. And encouragement, mm. you know, and praise. And still realising that there was a line you didn't cross at the same time, you know. You didn't go overboard that way. But um, firmness and kindness, both together, you mm. know, that was the whole secret. And I got great satisfaction out of getting the best out of those, you mm. know. And sport played a huge part in that as well. You yeah. know, whatever sport they played, yeah. bringing them out, getting them involved in sport, making them feel important. All of those things were crucial in getting the very best out of them. And I just love that aspect of teaching. Right. OK, so you're not maybe the disciplinarian as rule number one that I might have imagined from a Well, I, I suppose, you know, I got that reputation, I suppose, with Claire, yeah. uh, you know, when I came in la- later on. But, you know, from the very, very beginning, uh, when I started teaching, I started coaching the, the players as well, you know, and bringing out all the, the ones in the different classes, really from third at fourth, fifth, and all the things I learned co- for coaching. Uh, it was there that I learned it. I learned it from, you know, the, my work, the, the work I had done with the young lads. And we, we used to have leagues on at lunchtime and after school, and the children just loved it. And the more 
aggressive it was or physical it was, the better they liked it. That I think that's a big mistake that people make nowadays, Joe. That it, that everybody has to be, it has to be softly, softly, and everybody has to be kind of enjoying themselves. But I have found through you know, forty years of dealing with children, that they love toughness and matches and the, the competitive element of sport. Children yeah. just love that. Even the weaker children love it. You well, know? I, I remember as a child, I was okay with losing and winning. That was, yeah. that was okay with me because I was going to actually ask you, so you've seen children from the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Is there a change in the Irish child at that age over that period of time? Are they more sensitive? Are they more confident? Are they cheekier? Are they bolder? Are they, are they any worse or any better? No doubt about it, they're better. You know, there's no doubt about it. Children are taught in a much better way now. Right. The huge development that I saw in overall my time in teaching was in the area of special education, special aid. Like, you know, the children with, with learning difficulties, the support system that's there now, mm. is, especially in this country, you know, it is totally underrated, I think, the, the, the amount of resources that has been put into helping the, the weaker children, children with all kinds of syndromes, all identified now, and help given mm. to them. I mean, that, that was the huge development I saw over my time in teaching. Mm. Now, you could say the standards of the three R's, we say reading, writing, and, and maths, like, that, that did drop, no doubt about that. Like, that there was a very, very high standard there when I started off first, and you, you just have to take one of the one of the, the textbooks from that time and compare it with the textbook you have now and nowadays. Like, there is no comparison to the difficulty. But then again, there were a lot of the exercises that were given then, like, they were pointless, you know, three, you know, there are all kinds of mathematical equations that, you know, they had no relevance to the children at that age. Mm-hmm. So I think now it is much more practical, much more relevant to the society we live in. It is, the curriculum has expanded massively, including mm-hmm. the arts and all of that thing. And uh, I, children nowadays, the education is better, their school experience is a way, way better. I do think, however, that in the area of health and safety, we just have gone over the top completely. And that has inhibited a lot of the enjoyment that children could have. You know, I know there have been awful abuses and all that, and people have to guard against it. But it's very difficult now for people in, in schools to get involved because, you, you know, if you're bringing children to a game, you have to have somebody else with you in the car if you're bringing them a car. At that time, we used to all pile them into the cars. You know, you might have seven or eight children inside in your car, parents, everybody, all on your own. Even going swimming that time, you could bring them up to the swimming pool on your own and the the dive cars would take over. All of those things can't be done anymore. And I used to have a a yard league below in the school. That's only 10 years ago. We'll say Podge Collins. 15 years ago, he was, he, he'd have been in the last of those. And in the morning, they go out. They weren't allowed to wear helmets. They had these hurleys with plastic tops in them. And they used to flake the living daylights out of each other. And we, in the yard league in the evening, the whole day would be spent to try and keep them concentrated in school because they'd, be con- they'd want to have the best team possible for the yard league that, that evening. And there used to be a murder in the yard. Well, I remember you know? even in my primary school, there was a rule that came in halfway through that running was banned. Yeah, in that's the yard. Right. And that's I thought, right. even as a child, I thought, is that not going a bit far? It is amazing. And at and, 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 and that time, Joe, as well, even, this is only 15 years ago yeah. now. And, and in the school I was in, the teachers have to have been running as well in the yard now. But that time at 11 o'clock break, you know, during the winter time, we used to have a school run. The whole school would go out. And they'd go out, they'd leave the school, they'd go out onto the, main, uh, onto the road. Well, it's not a main road, but it's still a, a road cars, And they'd stay on the footpath, pass a church, mm. about a half a mile of a lap around. And, they used to do, and their children loved course, doing yeah. that lap, you know. Yeah, yeah. But you can't do that now, you yeah. know. So those, those are the way it has changed. But overall, most change, I would emphasize, most change has been for the better. 
you're looking incredibly well, I have to say. Came in fit, tanned, a yeah. man who's enjoying the outdoors. So clearly your health is in a very good place. Well, listen, uh, as, as you guys, you know, the leukemia I got there five years ago, I've gone past the five-year mark now. So, I mean, I mean, that is, you know, that's one of the big landmarks. If you get past that, you know, it absolves you from going in every two or three months to get your bloods done. Now I just go in every uh, once a year. So really, you know, I was, I was just one of the lucky ones, you mm-hmm. know. I got a le- leukemia. The treatment is very, very severe, I know. And there are a few difficult years afterwards. Because I read, I thought, well, you thought you had flu. That, that was it, you know, and it was out hunting again. That was the first time I saw I, I, I felt the symptoms of it about six, almost six years ago now to St. Patrick's Day, actually, right. above, or, out in Fetal. And I just went to a gap to catch two dogs coming out a gap across the field, and I found I couldn't run, you know. And I knew then there was something seriously around it. This wasn't just a flu. So, but between this and that, it took another two years, another two months to really diagnose it. But once diagnosed and once I got into the system, it was absolutely fantastic, you know. You were up in St. James's, weren't you? Open St. James's, yeah. I was there for three different uh, periods altogether, each one lasting maybe... Um, each one last, or there were four periods actually, but each one lasting maybe 30, 35 days, you know. So, really, really as it goes on, it gets tougher and tougher because your system right. is weaker. But I mean, they know what they're doing, that's it, you yeah. know, they know what they're doing, and they got me out the other end. And they get most people out now the other end, you know, because it's, it's one area where expertise is improving all the time, sure. you know. And, and I'm very, very grateful to all the people there from the, from the lady that cleaned the floor in the morning. To the very top people there, everybody was treated the same and everyone was treated with respect. And uh, even though the treatment was tough, you were given every encouragement and every chance to survive it. Right. Are you, you know, because I think you're kind of isolated at times during the treatment, aren't you? You're you're on your own a bit. Yeah, you're in a you're, you're in uh, an, a room that's uh, air, an air an air filtered room because the big danger is uh, the danger of infection. Infection, infection is the big danger. So, what are your thoughts on then? Are you more feeling sorry for yourself? Are you worried for your family and a future? Do you think about the past, the future? Do you think about nothing? Well, I, actually, before I went in, I was reading a book about a fellow who was spent in jail, and he was given exa- he was given advice before he went in, and he, the advice was, "The jail is now your life. There's no life outside of it. Forget about the life you have outside it." So, really, what I went, when I went into James's was, I immersed myself in the routine of James's. You know, uh, every four hours, someone would come in and they'd check your blood pressure and check your lungs. Uh, check your temperature, and that was the way it went on. You know, it had its own, it had its own routine rhythm, yeah. and uh, its own rhythm, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you kind of you get into the rhythm of that. You know, the lady would come in, clean in the room in the morning. They'd have a chat at her. Then some other fellow come around. The electrics would be wrong. He would have a chat at him. Different people would, come, would be coming in during the day. The nutritionist would be in. You know, th- there, it had its own routine. Okay. And so I just absorbed myself in that uh, that routine. That was my way of surviving it. Other people just cut themselves off completely and then others you know would be in constant contact with the world outside but I think like that you know you're going to be there for five weeks at a time and immersing yourself in the routine of the hospital was my way of of coping with Mm. it and are you religious absolutely not did you become religious no no, right. I just uh, I just was the same way as I always was. I just put total faith in the doctors. I said, if I'm going to survive this, it'll be because of what 
the doctors here do, you mm-hmm. know. And if they came in in the morning and said, listen, here is a, um, a cup full of tablets. I want you to take all these. I just swallowed them down. I wouldn't ask him what the tablets were for. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't ask him what they were. I just took them, yeah. you know. And anything they came when they came with the chemo, no matter how severe it was or how sick I was from the previous time, just took it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, that, that, was, that was my way of doing it, you yeah. know. So I was never a religious person that way in the strict sense of being uh, religious. I just take it that, you know, this happened to me. The doctors were my best, you know, James, the advice they were giving me was my best way of surviving it. And I just did everything I was asked to do inside there. I never objected to anything, just said, whatever you say, I'm, I'm going to do it. Right, okay. Yeah. Am I right in saying that on your first night in James's, and really when nobody knew you were there, that somehow your phone beeps and it's daily? How he knew, I don't know, or how the world got around so quickly, because I didn't know that morning until about half 11, 12 o'clock that I was going to James. I went in to, in, into Limerick to meet the doctor. I told nobody I was going in. I said it was the following Monday. Maybe this was a Thursday or Friday, whatever day it was. And Dr. O'Keefe came in and he says, you have acute myeloid leukemia and I want you to be in James's this evening at 7 o'clock, St. James's Hospital this evening at 7 o'clock. He was as fast as that. Wow. Pause there for a second. Does the room start spinning? Well, I mean, you just, uh, the strange thing about it was, uh, like, your head is spinning, you know, because, you know, you always kind of, you have a defensive thing inside you. You're always clinging to the thing, ah, it's something else, you know. He'll say something that'll be, he'll give me a bottle or give me tablets going home and I'll I'll be fine. And the strange thing was is I went back into school. I went out from there because I got in from the school and I went back into school and waited until lunchtime. I said nothing to any of the teachers. I didn't want to say anything because it was too confusing in my own mind and went home and then headed straight for Dublin, headed straight for James. And that night, um, my, Mary, my wife was gone home and next thing, Taylor has this phone, you know, and I have this thing in my phone about, you know, don't, don't, don't give in, you know. You know, I, I forget exactly what the wording yeah. was, but the message was, the messages that I had often given to them before they went out playing fight, him. Fight. Absolutely. Yeah. Fight it, yeah. yeah. But that's, the, that, that's typical of Dale like because lovely. like even when we, you know, I suppose Claire became famous for dummy teams and all that when we were there, but you could never fool Daly. Like, he <laughs> nearly always knew what was in your mind. He was, a, he was like that. Like, he's a mind reader. <laughs> Does it change your perspective on life coming at the end of that or are you a very, very similar person? That is, a, that is the thing that I must be different to a lot of other because an awful lot of people say it's changed their perspective, it's changed everything. It didn't change anything to me, really. All I wanted to do was get back to what I was doing before because right. I was happy with what I was doing before. It was as simple as that, right. you know? Now, uh, it, it also coincided with uh, that deal the government gave to teachers in 2011, mm. was it? You know, where you can early so retirement. Yeah. Early retirement, yeah. So I suppose there was a bit of karma there, all right. That there, you know, that mm. there, was, there was a great chance to retire from the teaching at that stage as well. And, and anyway, uh, you know, I had been principal long enough. We, there was some brilliant teachers in the school, a lot of whom, you know, you, you, you had a choice of who could take over from me. Mm. And, I mean... You know, when you have young people of real quality like that and they've got a bit of experience, it's only, you know, it's, it's great to give them the chance. Yeah. To, to, and like the school was brilliant when I was there, but it is even better now than right. it was then. Right. You know, right. you know, so it just shows you that like not alone is nobody indispensable, but um, I often when you do change and you give people of talent their head things improve rather than disimprove. Mm. You know? mm. And a final point in all this, the other surreal moment in it is 
everyone hears the rumour that Sherlock Nan's passed away. Well, that was one of the, the strangest rumours of all time because we actually had come out, I, I actually had come out of uh, James's and when you do come out the first time, your system is very, very low. And I had got two very bad infections while I was there the first time. So I was in bed the following morning out in my sister-in-law's house in, in, in Dublin. And uh, Mary came in and she says, Connor's on the phone from Australia. He's after hearing that you're dead. Right. And he won't believe it. He won't believe that you're alive until you speak to him yourself on the phone. What age is Connor? He was in. He was. Uh, what age was he then? He was about twenty-five. He was. He was. He was in. In us working in Australia. So, right. Anyway, and next thing I try, try to invest. Then Kian Cunningham from the Star rings me, and he says, uh, "You did a good job with someone." I said, "Did you believe it as well?" You know. So then I found out what had happened. But actually, it was on the Examiner. Right. The Examiner printed it on there. I had it up on that website. But I don't actually blame anyone for it because. What I found out what happened was that somebody rang the hospital that evening, right? I think there's some feet. Somebody rang the hospital mm. just to talk to me. Yeah. And the nurse on duty said, I'm sorry, she says, but he's gone. You know? So he's gone. Oh, quickly come on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But actually, right across the road from where we are now, there's a great uh, food shop over here, the food haven. TJ McGinnis from Fetal has it, right? Right. TJ is a guest character now, but he told me a great story about it. Like he was in Peppers, which is the pub in Fetal that night, and they all headed that Sherlock Nam was dead, right? So, anyway, when he went home from the pub, his son was in bed, and he woke up the son from bed, right? Yeah. And he had he, the two of them got out, and they drank two bottles of his best wine at three or four in the morning. And next morning, he woke up maybe 11 or 12 o'clock with a desperate headache, and he heard that I was alive. And so he said, well, if you look then, he says, you ruined my two best bottles of wine. <laughs> but listen, those things happen. You, you ah, know. listen. Yeah, yeah. Let that be a ner- lesson to nurses everywhere. Joan say, I'm sorry, yes, he's gone. Yes, That's, exactly. Um, yeah. It's the wrong phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, actually, though, so you, and we'll, we'll move on to the hurling now. I was driving down here, Ennis, and today is a beautiful, it's one of those lovely winter days. Perfect day for hunting, I'd say, you thought as you were. Yeah, I was out yesterday, yeah, it was beautiful, yeah. yeah. And I was doing this thing, probably knowing I was coming to talk to you, but unconsciously or just drifting into it as I got Ennis. And I was looking at people, and I was just, as I came across different people in cars, thinking, what age were they 20 years ago? And imagining them in those summers, you know, our lads in their 60s, 70s now thinking, oh, they 20 years ago, what is a hell of a time for them? Or people in their 30s remembering the madness as kids. And I was thinking, like, the impact that you and that team had on this place. For five, six years during those summers, which seemed unbelievably hot and sunny all the time, like, this place was rocking. And it must be a lovely thing for you to know that you had that impact on this place. It's just amazing that reference point that 19, 1995 has for so many people. You know, when you mention 1995, not alone for Claire, but for a lot of people outside it, you know. Oh, if, you, it, if someone says to me 1995 yeah. as a Kildare man, <coughs> yeah. and I, you know, I was 10. Yes. The first thing I think of in 1995 is you and Daly and yeah. Jamesy and that team. Yeah, it, yeah. it's just amazing the, the, the grip it had on the, uh, the, on the public. For I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the team had so many exceptional characters outside of being players at all at all. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, it has a, there was a, a charisma, I suppose, about those players, yeah. you know. That, and the people in Clare really, really talked to them, you know. Every, like, I remember even five years later in, in 1995, 
1999, you know, go, coming back from Dublin after one of those big controversies or something, maybe it was 1998, mm. and just coming over, for, we'll say, from Killaloo in Tennis and down to Shannon, and to look at all the, the, the houses out the countryside that had clear flags flying off them, you know, for worn out clear <laughs> flags that were there for so long yeah. before it, you know. Uh, it, I suppose it, the same thing would happen nowadays if Mayo won an All-Ireland in football. You'd have a very mm. similar. People would remember the year yeah. and nearly they'd remember where they were when, mm. when Mayo won the, the Sam Maguire mm. because, like, the history of Clare Holding was littered with disappointments. Sure. You know. As, to, you, as you knew as a player as well. Yeah. So, like, we had Mick O'Connell on recently. We were just talking about that before we started talking. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. But clearly, the, because that's etched in your memory, the relationship you had with the people meant a lot to you at the time. And still means a lot to you, I'd say. Yeah, well, it means an awful... It, it, it did mean an awful lot because, like, I think the difference was, like, it was a movement of people. People... And I suppose it, a lot of it arose as well. If it, just, if it was just one year, it wouldn't have been the same. But I think 1998, with the controversies with Waterford and mm. then later on with, with Offaly, it was like an army on the march. You know, people yeah. identified with the team and they were going to support the team. You know, they were going to the match, not alone to see Clare play, but they were, you know, whatever, come what may that day, they were there to back up the players to the very last. So it, it, it was it was more, they were more than supporters. They were part of a massive movement mm-hmm. that was there for maybe four or five years. Yeah. And there was a, a huge bond then between supporters and between players. Mainly, I would say, you know, down to, it was down to the, the kind of, Characters that you had on that team, on that, on that, and that I think that means an awful lot to people. That you know, when they do identify with the different characters that are there, they do support them in a different way. It's not just come, they go. They did. They, they were going to go no matter what the occasion, and uh, no matter how the team were going, they were they 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 were determined to go to the game to support the team. Well, a quote that you had which really struck me about that team: you said they were good hurlers. This is back around ninety four, ninety five. They were good hurlers, but the quality of people they were was just exceptional. There was something about them and this is what I thought was very striking there was an intelligence about them I'd say that I hadn't seen to the same extent in my own time as a player or anything else I think that was a, that is very true that, yeah. um, and, and, and that's the thing that stands out in my mind even all, looking back we'll say from this distance which is a long distance and getting longer every year mm. but few things stand out in your mind at the end of it <coughs> I, I remember our very first meeting with them all in the very first meeting I said I remember saying to him, I remember clearly saying to him, I said, no team, like a lot of teams had a way better hurlers than we have. But I said, there is no team. And I said this, and I said to him genuinely, there is no team that has as many players of such character as we have. And that is a great starting point because in my experience, and like, I suppose you can, you know, you draw a lot from experience. In my experience, even looking back now, I mean, it was a fluke that so many outstanding characters, leaders, call them what you like, came together at that one time. Now, their holding was typical Clare when we started off with them. It was very, very slow. That, that was the big fault that I had seen with, with Clare holding down to the years. In wintertime, like we won leagues with the team. I, and we had a, you know, if we had somebody to get that extra bit out of us, maybe we would have made the breakthrough or if the backdoor system was there, all those ifs. But... The fault with Clare was when summertime came, they just weren't able for the pace of the game. You know, when other teams upped the pace, Clare stayed at the one pace. They were marathon runners instead of being sprinters, which mm. you needed in the summer. So it was to get them from there, from being those marathon runners to being sprinters, that was the big, that was the, you know, the, the big task that we had. And, but you can do anything. 
and I, I firmly believe this, you can do anything with a team or a group, provided that that team or that group has the kind of character and the, are the kind of characters yeah. that we have. Because, you know, the, the, the training, by all accounts, was, you know, to quote Dalo when he was on the show, barbaric, laughing, and yeah. uphills. You know, you had to get into that level of fitness to play that speed of hurling, presumably, is your, yes, exactly. is your thinking. Mm. But they had to understand that. They had to buy into that. I've heard you make the point. So, like, you know, say 95, for instance... Uh, as you head towards a Munster final again, that's heading for a third Munster final in a row, that team, that group. And they would become the first Clare team to lose three Munster finals in a row. And Anthony Daly was on the show and even he was having a conversation with PJ O'Connell, fingers, is, you know, who would, have, who would be man of the match in that Munster final. That's right. And he was saying to Daly in the car a couple of days before the match, I'm sick of it. If we don't win this one, I'm actually packing it in. And he was only maybe 24 at that stage. But he was that sick of it. I don't know, do you remember this sense that if we don't actually make this breakthrough now, like you didn't as a player in 78, and you've talked about walking off the pitch and knowing it was up. Yeah. If we don't make this breakthrough this time in this Munster final in 95, that could kill this team. Was that in your thinking? No, no, it was. Actually, even to add to that, Joe... I remember when they were leaving the dressing room that day to go out and play Limerick. And, I mean, the crowd was, that time, it was 5-1 to one in favour of Limerick because Limerick, you know, they had a tough look the year before sure. and the crowd in Limerick were supporting them, you know. They'd come out of their face. And I, I remember when they, just as they were leaving the dressing room, they were gone out and Pat Fitzgerald, who was, who was the secretary then and the secretary now, I said to Pat, I said, Pat, if we don't win today, we will never win a Munster Championship. I said that to him on the dressing room. Pat will say that, yeah. I knew we were as right. You couldn't have a team more right for a day. And you know yourself when a team is right. Anyone in charge of a team knows that. Mm. They couldn't be more right than they were that day. And right. if they hadn't made the breakthrough that day, I'd say we still wouldn't have made any kind of a breakthrough. That team wouldn't have made a breakthrough. It had come to that defining moment. There are certain games when really you just have to make that. You can have a few narrow misses and you can have a few bad defeats as the team develops. But at a point in the development of the team, a team comes. And we'll say Brian Lohan, Anthony Daly, Jamesy probably, David Fitz. There were a group within that that was going to be their third defeat in a row. They couldn't afford that. Mm. You know, they couldn't afford. And even though that pressure was on, they played with total freedom, you know. And uh, I knew how do you account for that? Well, or that belief I tell you now, we were down in... in I, I, the, re, the time it really came to my mind it was going to happen was we were down in Torles, just down training there. The, I think it was the Monday or Tuesday before the final, you know, just to go down and get used to play yeah. a game in the field and all that. And I remember when the game was... The game was so good and it was a roasting evening. The, right. the, the, gra- the, the grass was even crackling. Remember that was, that was a roasting summer? Yeah. And... The game was so fast. The Lazarus, they were all in such great form. You know, there were, you, no sign of, of, of the kind of tensions that you usually have. I said, I, I, knew, I knew we were exactly right going into that. I, and, and when you know you're right, uh, you know, when you know the team is right and everything is going well, even though it's a pressurized situation, you know, it didn't feel the kind of pressure. You know, I didn't feel the pressure going into that final, the same as I had when I played in finals myself. We were sure we had the work done and we were sure we'd out, we'd outwork Limerick on the day. We were certain yeah. we would outwork them, that they, didn't ha- they hadn't worked. Because I suppose we stole a march, like in fairness, we stole a march and a lot of other teams because they hadn't done the kind of winter preparation that we had done, mm. you know. And when that, that was the day that that paid off, you know, that, that we knew that the money was in the bank. 
you know, that, they, that it was in our legs that if we set a, a scorching pace on a hot day, that nobody at that time yeah. would stay with us. So. You fast forward to that All-Ireland final day and I want to play you a clip of Jamesy O'Connor. He was speaking to us in Galway. We did a road show with Jamesy about a year and a half ago and we were just asking him for, you know, any memory of those All-Ireland finals or those days or what are they like? And he told us this story. You can have a listen. We had the luxury of staying in our own beds down the night before the game because we, we flew up. And my, my first time, I mean, I was 23, I think, um, in 95. And uh, my first time ever on a plane was actually flying to the All-Ireland semi-final against Galway. So, you know, if I fear of flying, I was going uh, to find out that day. But So we flew up. Did you bring your passport? The, uh, no, we, passports weren't required. We were, we were we connections at the airport. But, um, no, we, we, so we met, met, convened at the Oakwood Arms Hotel in Shannon and um, did that for the semi-final. Obviously, it worked well against Galway. And... Um, so it was the same same situation for the for the final, and uh, whatever I don't know whether someone had parked, whatever way the bus driver had parked, instead of being able to you know come out the front entrance, we were blocked, whatever. So we had to drive around the back. So no problem, we drive around the back of the hotel. So we got around the back of the hotel. The next thing, there was a gate, farm gate, in the way, and, yeah. and it, it was locked. And someone said, "We'll just chill back up and go out again." And Lagnan got up to the front of the bus. We're not taking a step back today. <laughs> and himself and um, Jim McInerney, who would have been a character, just. Up, up to the front of the bus got out they lifted the gate off the hinges put it to one side the bus drove on and you know I mean, sure, and th- like the atmosphere would have been very uppy but that was just Lagnan or Lagnan probably came down the night before locked the gate and it was all it was all orchestra that, that, that would have been Lagnan but it, 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 it just it, it probably wasn't locked yeah but it just it, listen like you know the atmosphere as I said we, we had a lot of I mean Delo you know Jim Mack there was a rake of upbeat kind of positive characters in our team and I suppose Lagnan maybe you know was going to use every edge he could um, and that was the way the day started and thankfully um, even though I, I didn't hit a ball in the final but the, the rest of the day went pretty much to plan as I can Did you lock that gate? Listen I'm getting you a reputation I don't deserve here <laughs> No but it was just one of those things like you know that you're given, you've given the message that uh, yeah. there's no you, you're not going to take a step back from any and, you know from once this day starts we're not backing down from sure. anybody that, that was the whole thing but you know th- there's a curious thing that, that and adding to what James you said there like you know, everybody when they're at home on their own, you would have, you know, a little bit of doubt is bound to creep into your mind. You know that, you know, mm-hmm. this is a huge occasion, and are we going to win it? Yeah. But I, what I used to find was that from the minute we would all meet together, you know, all the players, Tony Hanstein, Mike Mack, Colin Flynn, when we'd all meet together, a new air came in. You got a new air of conference, and I, I got it as well. Right. You know, a new okay. air of conference that. God, here we are, you know, listen, we are, we are unbeatable. Like, you know, we, there is nothing going to stop us. That, <laughs> that air in big games, yeah. we used to get, that atmosphere used to creep in, not just before the game, but from the minute we'd meet that morning. You know, everybody was upbeat. And as James said there, there were so many characters mm-hmm. to keep the thing going. It was great. Well, it was chemistry, you know. I mean, there was, was. chemistry there. <clears> and um, I was funny. I, so speaking of that at, uh, final against Offaly, I was outside Crow Park a couple of years ago and I saw you walking up by the Hogan stand and uh, somebody shouted over Lachnan to look over and he just said we're going to do it (laughs) and I did uh, I did think to myself I must ask him how often in his life people say to him we're going to do it well, listen, one of the greatest lifts I ever got, actually, when it, is when I was in James's at uh, the time of, um, you know, when I had the leukemia in James's. And somebody sent me a photo. 
Ireland were playing the international rules or something in, I think it was in Perth or something right. like that in Australia. And uh, there was an Irish flag there. It's a fellow from Shannon, actually. And, I, uh, and on across the Irish flag, they had written, we're going to do it. <laughs> you know, and they sent me the photograph of it, you know, because I suppose, you know, when you are, when you are in a place like that, you know, it, it reminds you of better times, mm, <laughs> like, you know, sure. great time. But actually, apart from that, I remember going into the dressing room that day and Michal Omer Hertig was inside. He was, you know, he was inside waiting when the team went in. And I said, me, oh, look at him, I said, I said, Geez. I said, there's nothing going to stop him. You know, yeah. that's, you know, we're going to win it. So did you, did you think as the second half started, geez, um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said that on television just then. No, there was a great incident at halftime there. A thing happened in the dressing room. The Davy had let in a very, uh, with him, really a very soft goal before halftime. Ball came across, I think, from Michael Dyden, and yeah. it just slipped off his hole and went into the air. And the minute we went into the dressing room, all the lads gathered around him. You know, there was no one going off to their own corner. This was the difference I, I had seen from my mm. own time. They all gathered around him, telling him, forget about it, you know, that's, everything is grand, you know, you know, put it behind you. The game is still there to be won and we're, go, we're going out to win it. Yeah. And that was, I was just reflecting then what was the feeling of all the players inside. You look like you know? a man still in dressing room mode. Yeah, oh yeah, that exactly, was, you know, exactly. Yeah. You, know, you, you, know, you know yourself, you're a few pints down, it's your first All-Ireland, you feel you've weathered the world to the storm and you know listen you have to have that conviction that you're mm. going to win it mm. you know what you said to your team at half time well we haven't played as well as we could in the first half however we've been against the wind so now the game is going to be won now in the next 35 minutes and I've just asked him to give him that last ounce for Clare for this 35 minutes you think you're going to do it we're going to do it but if James puts this over the bar I don't think he's going to be too worried about the ones that have gone by absolutely not and he's done so James's second point I'm sure there's a loss there tomorrow in Clare and St. Flannans and Clare are just about to win. They've won! Clare have won the All-Ireland. What a victory. A tribute to determination and no little trapped. Well coached by Joe Lachnan. He told us at halftime they'd do it. He said they'd win the Munster. They did. Eat your heart out, Biddy Early. Clare have done it by two points. 113 to 2-8. As you fitter across those years, you know, it's an amazing thing, of course, in 96 is Limerick um, Beach in the Munster semi-final. And again, in Anthony Daly's book, like that seems to be one of the great days in your career, even though you lost trying to defend your title. And he recounts a story where the bus is reaching the stadium and there's a, there must be some kind of hill and you can mm. see down and again, the heat and it's shimmering. And he remembers you observing the scene and standing up at the front of the bus and, you know, powerful words about how this is what our grandparents remember. This is what our parents remember. This is why we're alive. And Daly is swept away and he screams and everybody beside him screams. And there's a bunch of madmen on this bus just screaming together, going to war. Yes. Yeah. Well, you must remember that we were reared on the lore of the Monster Championship, you yeah. know, not winning in all of but for Clare to win a Munster Championship. People never spoke about winning in All-Ireland. And we were reared on stories from Mick Mackey on through the era of Christy Ring, of course, and on through the era of the great t- Tipperary team of Jimmy Dial, John Dial, and all of those, mm-hmm. you know. And my first game that I ever saw in a Munster Championship was actually in Limerick of a roasting hot day between Tipperary and, and Cork, you know. So I knew what it was like. That was Actually, that was the day that was the first time that people sold water 
out of a bottle. You know, this, it was considered, <laughs> my God, imagine people bought water in a bottle, you know. It'll never take yeah, off. It'll never take off, exactly. <laughs> they ran out of ice cream and they started selling water out of a bottle, you know, and people <laughs> saying afterwards, you know. But that's, the, you know, we were reared on that, yeah. on, on all those stories. And the day that, uh, that epitomized that most for me was going in the Innes Road that day, you had a sea of people on the road. There were no cars on the road. You had a sea of people coming up to... Uh, to uh, the Gaelic grounds and you had this shimmer of heat rising off the people mm. as they walked in and we were coming behind that in the bus wow. you knew this was Monster That's Championship the real deal, that yeah. is the, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. the atmosphere like I I always say of that uh, it, was, it is one of my most treasured memories that game you know and the game itself it mightn't have been the greatest game of all I don't know how good a game it was yeah. but it was the, definitely the greatest occasion as an occasion of a Munster Championship occasion I don't think there was ever a better Munster Championship occasion there might have been better matches sure. and then the finish with Kieran Carey it really copper fastened its yeah. place in folklore you know afterwards you so. saw him in the dressing room afterwards did you? Did yeah you yeah smoking a fag afterwards <laughs> inside in the dressing room yeah yeah. and he was saying there were crows to be plucked out after the day I didn't know what he meant by that but anyway much time left here comes Kieran Carey Carey leading the charge of the light brigade 45 metres out he's a chance to score He's put it high, he's put it over! And the All-Ireland champions out! And Limerick to advance to the Monster Final! The fans, the subs are ready to come in! Doesn't go next to near them! But it doesn't matter! It's all over! Limerick have won! But what a... You know, but I mean, that was their day. You weren't going to take yeah. away one bit from it. And oh, it was just one of those magical days. It's a lovely thing to be able to say about a defeat. It is, yeah, it is. Did you reach is. that conclusion quickly or were you absolutely devastated? Uh, like, we were devastated. I, I knew we weren't, we knew ourselves we weren't actually properly right for that. You know, people say, oh, if you beat Limerick that day, I don't think, I think Tipperary would have beaten us afterwards in the Munster final. Now, Tip very, very nearly beat Limerick to the draw the first day. Right. And Limerick beat him the next day. I think Tip would have taken us. We, we weren't as ready as we were the year before. Or we weren't half as ready as we were the following year. You yeah. know, so even though it was a big disappointment at the time, uh, I think it, it, what it did was it gave us the hunger to get ready for the to following go again. year. To yeah. go again. Yeah. And that following year is so important in a host of levels. Obviously, you're not flashing the pan team then. You win your second All-Ireland. But also, it's an All-Ireland where you go Cork, Tip, Kilkenny and Tip again just for good measure. Yeah, that's, well, that's proper. No one can doubt this team now. It is the team that copper fastened the reputation of that team. And, you know, I remember about three or four weeks later, I just had a, we had a meeting down in, in the Clare Inn uh, of, of that team and I was driving home that message. You know, that... 95 might have been good and great or whatever, but it would be no good unless we put the second one back to back. I said, we might as well put, give away the medals, you know, that we had to, not back to back, but win the second one. And the effort we put in for that following year. Now, it was a more aggressive approach. You know, there's no question about that. We had to change our approach because, you know, being the people's favourites wasn't going to win you, or being the people's darlings wasn't going to win you in all Ireland. We had to add a further cutting edge to our holding, I felt, to, to, and bring it up to a new level right. in order to get there. And you know, I suppose, you know, the, the game against Cork that first year with Stephen Max goal at the end. But at the Munster final that year, like, that was the day I got more satisfaction of all. Really? Yeah. Beating Tip? Beating Tip in the Munster final. Because I suppose that, for me, having gone to school in Flannans, right, in the 60s, mm. when Tip were the cock, you know, they were cock-a-hoop, they were, they were the kings of hurling at that stage. That was the great Tipperary team of the early 60s. And, you know, once they got to Ireland, and then all the Tip lads in Flannans 
we're not slow, we shall say, about asserting their superiority. Naturally enough, when a yeah. team is on top. And <clears throat> there was massive rivalry between the Clare lads and the Tipperary lads there, you know. And yeah. all through, I suppose, you felt that you hadn't really won a monster championship until you'd beat Tipperary, you know. And we hadn't met them the year before mm. uh, the, uh, in 95. So there was always that question mark about us. Right. And then to beat Tipperary in a monster final, I remember deciding to dress them afterwards. There was no hollering or shouting or anything else, but people sitting down in the greatest sense of satisfaction. Way superior now, even, to winning an All-Ireland. The All-Ireland is a game of euphoria. But the depth of satisfaction, that, well, maybe it's as I felt it most anybody else, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But the depth of satisfaction that they, yeah. in, 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 um, in the Munster final was something that I never felt even after winning the All-Irelands. Oh. You know, that it was really, really, and there's copper fastened in, of course, with, uh, with Dalos, um, we're no longer the whipping by the Munster mm. speech, of course, which, of course, led to set up everything for the All-Ireland later on. Yeah, fantastic, really. once again. Beware the rest of Ireland. Clare are on their way. Every Clare, man, woman and child, came to Cork this weekend on a mission. Our mission, our mission was to show that we're no longer the whipping boys of Munster. Did you notice a discernible shift as you entered 98 in how you were viewed by the public? Gone were the plucky, lovable underdogs of 95. Now you were a dirty team and Lucknam was going to war and, um, yeah. you know, these boys, maybe it was nice having them around for a while, but they can go back home now. Yeah, you had that as well, Joel. And, and were you being paranoid when I, you thought that? A big, a big factor in that was that Munster final, I think, and, but especially the fallout from that Munster final, yeah. you know, because that, that's the speech that Adelo made, uh, first of all, they're no longer the whipping by the monster. As well as that, Babs had said, rightly, he had given the example when the back door came in, he had gi- and rightly given it that, for example, he said Claire could beat Tip in the Munster final, but then Tip could come back and beat him when it really mattered. Mm-hmm. So there was savage tension for that Munster at All Ireland. Right, okay. No game ever took as much out of me as that uh, uh, All Ireland between Tip and Claire because we had so much to lose that day. Right. You know, all the triumph of Munster would have been cast aside, it all have been left aside. The All Ireland we won would always be thrown aside. Yeah. If Tip had beaten us in that whole yeah. island. And the tension in, in that game was something that I had never experienced in all of the games before or yeah. since. Right. I never, uh, or even as a player or anything else. And really that whole island was won for us by the absolute leadership shown by the players at halftime. You know, we were four points down at halftime. And I'll never forget what Brian Lohan did that time. <clears throat> like he went, he got, he stood up and he had the pole of the hurley into every player's head, showed him in and told them exactly what's at stake. And he ordered the forwards to get the next four points after halftime. You know, it'll show the, drive, the drive that was within those fellas. It was a kind of a savagery. And I suppose that was reflected in the play as well. You know, okay. players played. I remember even Joe Dooley, the following year, Joe Dooley, uh, uh, Johnny said to one of the players, they said, what drugs are you on? Because they played with that kind of uh, ferocity to that mm. play, you know. And... You know, people inter- in- in- intercepted that in their own or, or, or uh, 
got the idea. The idea went out that they were aggressive on the field, they were aggressive off the field. It's time to get rid of these fellas from the field. Yes, you know? yeah. And, yeah and but that's natural enough sure. as well. Like, you know, and, that's natural and enough and as like, well. Like 98, I was watching YouTube videos of you back in 98. So for younger listeners, there's a Munster final and uh, Colin Lynch, as everybody was, and frankly for the whole game, not just a throw-in, was swiping away. And Lynch is up before the Munster Council and he would he would get a three-month ban. Not many guys getting three-month bans in GAA. And two days before the Munster Council hearing, you did an interview, and we're sitting here in lovely Clare FM, and you did a very famous interview with Clare FM. I think you consulted legal people before the interview. And so there were things about the Munster Council which were, you know, so Clare had been treated like, quote, absolute criminals. It was a scandal. Lynch had been denied his basic human rights. The media were a mob. And then I presume on the basis of legal advice, you talked about the Munster Council and you referred to the Gestapo and you referred to a Don Corleone and no names were mentioned. (laughs) And... uh, uh, and I'm wondering, <coughs> have you lost touch with reality, or are you just are you just throwing a little grenade in, or where are you in your head there? Well, you have to go back. You have to wind the clock back a small bit now, Joe. That, that year <laughs> we played uh, in the league semi-final. We played against Cork, and Cork beat us by eleven or twelve points. The hammer the living dead. That's right. started new team. Donald Og, Sean Og, the Rock, and all of those. Come on! So we were playing them again in the Munster semi-final. Yeah. Now. Uh, we met him in the Munster semi-final. We gave our, one of our best displays ever in the semi-final, right? And the, listen, people saying these fellas are getting too clever by half. You know, they fed, they, they reckoned that we trained for three hours before we played them in the semi-final, which never happened. Yeah. You know, it's just that we were concentrating on, on the championship. So by the time the Munster final came around against Warford, naturally enough, the whole country wanted Warford to win. You know, and they wanted to put an end to these fellas who were, you know had risen above their station and it was time to put them back again. Now, that what people don't forget, what tend to forget is the first game against Waterford was a way dirtier or a way more physical, call it what you like, than the second game. Right. You know, but an incident happened and everybody knows this now, towards the end of the game, which I wasn't aware of at all at the time, where a Waterford player went overboard completely in what is now known as, you know, when you're slagging off these people. Sledging, yeah, sledging. with Daly, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. Daly, yeah. And, and, was taught, and I didn't know what happened. Mm. And actually, we came back to Killaloo that night. We were, we, we back to Killaloo to the hotel to eat, and the World Cup final was on. It was the one in Paris, the yeah. France and, and Brazil. Brazil yeah. And I was going watching the World Cup final. You know, we said we'd meet Monday or Tuesday for the replay. Yeah. And I was watching it. I, there was nobody watching it. And I said to Tony Cranston, what's wrong? I said, where are they watching the game? And he says to me, did you not hear? He said, what happened with Daly? And he named the Warford player. I don't want to name him now because there's water on the ridge. But anyway, I said, no. So he told me. So anyway, I called a meeting. We went downstairs. And from then on, the build-up started at following Sunday. Now, it was going to war. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I don't I make no bones about yeah. that. It was absolutely going to war. We, we, don't, have, to do we don't have to repeat what was said to Daly? No. But it was about as bad a thing as you could say. It to was, it was, yeah. it was, it was. And Daly then been such, if he said it maybe to somebody else, it might have yeah. been brushed over. But to say to Daly, to Daly, you know, who, you know, who, who well, he's was. Loved. He's yeah, loved. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he was the whole spiritual leader <clears throat> of the whole thing, you know, to say to him, like, it had to be avenged. It was as simple as that, one so, way or the other. So that yeah. explains why 
it was war in it that was war. game. And, he, and the funny thing about it was, however it got out, it got out among the crowd as well. Because everybody at the game that day, they all felt the tension before the game, which yeah. there shouldn't be at a replay, really. Yeah. You, shouldn't, you shouldn't have tension of, of that level, you know. Yeah. So that then there was a delay before the start of the game. But no, I'll tell you now, we were hyped to the absolute limits. You would have put your head... You know, you often have the expression, he put his head in. Yeah. You would have put anything in that. Day. You didn't care. Yeah. You know, so it was like absolute war that you were hyped up on, <laughs> you know, Mel Gibson in one of those brave Braveheart. Hearted. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those situations. Well, you know? I, to be fair, I don't think you were doubting the flames. I'd say you were in the dressing room saying they'll never take our freedom and uh, get well, out there. Would, and, yeah. yeah, no question I wasn't out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, you know... Yeah. Stoking up the <laughs> lay, yeah. Probably with overboard with the stoking. But anyway, when the game started, look at the, the, you know, the first few pulls yeah. in the game were just ferocious. And then there was an incident between Tony Brown and 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 Colin Lynch. And there was another incident with Brian Lohan and the, 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 both of those were sent off. Yeah. And the whole thing actually calmed down after that. And the game was played on and Claremont yeah. on and we won it easily, you yeah. know. But everything then came back to what happened. So there was a massive search then for visio- video evidence of our photographic evidence of what happened. There was no video evidence. Right. Um, Willie, Willie Barrett had booked the two players. He had booked Tony Brown and he had booked Colin Lynch. The linesman went in and told him that. And I thought everything was grand. Like, there was no basis for any kind of, uh, of an investigation or anything like that. But yeah. once the council, of course, went over, because, I mean, the, 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 the newspapers... Everything went totally and utterly Nuts. Yeah. Nuts. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I don't remember any anything that happened since. You know, getting such uh, publicity as that did. You yeah. know that. But you know, I suppose it just it, it was just a reflection on on on, on the level of. Um, of a focus that there was unclear at the mm. time as well. So and when, I, when, when, I, I look at it now as one of the greatest experiences I ever had in my life. Well, you know? I mean, so when you did that interview here and there's Gestapo and Don Corleone and basic human rights being infringed on, when you hang up the phone, like, do you mean all that? Or well, are you, are you, you kind of thinking, ah, look, that, that'll inside, play it up and If now. you're inside at a hotel at a meeting, right, with, with, with Colin Lynch, you know, that he's be interviewed yeah. and say what's going wrong, and he's not even brought in to the interview. Like, yeah. He's not even allowed in where they're discussing, you know, they, you know, usually anyone, yeah. if you look at rugby nowadays, if you look at any sport, they it, go before a panel. They go before a so panel. So your, your yeah. point is, you meant it when you said he was being screwed badly. Absolutely. Like, uh, right. He was completely and utterly uh, isolated. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem was, the GA had a, ba- a massive problem. They wanted to suspend him, but they had no video evidence. They had nothing in the referee's report. So how were they going to suspend him? Yeah. You know, they had to invent some kind of thing. And what people don't realise now, and it isn't like there's no skin of anybody's nose now because it's so, so long yeah. has passed it, he was actually suspended on the word of a member of the Munster Council who was in the crowd that day and actually said he saw... Ah, come on. That is exactly what happened. Right. I mean, that was a mad uh, night. So you do this interview on the radio and then there's the Munster Council meeting that Saturday and, of course, Lachnan turns up, gate yeah. crashes the party. Yeah. There's all sorts of weird happenings. Marty Morrissey goes live on RG television and mistakenly, I mean, second time in this interview this has come up, mistakenly kills off Colin Lynch's grandmother. He's had a stroke. <laughs> the death of Mary Ann Clossey, Colin Lynch's grandmother, has made this a very sad evening indeed. But whether or not his grand, her grandson will play in Croke Park in the All-Ireland semi-final against Offaly is still undecided. Which is I terrible. Know. It's not funny. No, no, I know. And the family it, were very upset. And in fairness to Marty, he drove to the hospital. And I know, it, Marty was great. Yeah, Marty was just the apology was accepted. Yeah, but it was yeah. just the weirdness of the night. The three months are handed down. And then there's. I watched this morning, you're walking out and you are ashen-faced. And 
uh, I think it's Marty talking to you. Someone's talking to you. It's and you know, there's a crowd all around you walking out a hotel lobby, and the, you know the cameraman's backing off trying to get you. And I think you say something like, "Well, let me just ask a, a question to every father and mother up and down the country." Would yeah. you let your son play GA? The first comments I made on Claire in that interview was that she was going to get three months. What happened tonight? We got three months. No representation allowed from Claire. You can draw your own conclusions about that. You know, and people all over the country can just ask themselves one question. The one question I asked myself coming out here tonight is, do I want my young fellow to be a member of, of an organisation like this? Well, he was totally... I mean... If there was a hearing and he was brought in and everything was done in the proper way and they produced the evidence, you know, you have something. Yeah, yeah. To, you See, have a basis then for yeah. suspending him. But suspending somebody on the, the way... And, I mean, Sean Kelly has said it's the one area in his whole GA career that he does regret. He was the chairman once the council. Then, yeah. But in fairness to Sean, oh, he had other ambitions, you know. Mm. He had other ambitions, you know. So, I yeah. mean, it's easy to say it nowadays that there's... Be, but you had, you had a group there and yeah. they were just out. They were going to get Claire and they were going to put these fellas in that place. And when that happens, it doesn't matter where it happens or what sport it happens in, that will always come from the establishment, yeah. with the people that yeah. are well established, the corks and tips of holding. They are going to put everybody else in their place, you know. Mm. And that's the aspect of it. You know, we had beaten them on the field, all these mm. on the field. You hate then these people kind of dictating to you off the field. Yeah. And, you know, put, you know, but there was nothing you could do about it. And then you had to get ready for a semi-final, which was even more bizarre. Well, yeah. like a final point <laughs> on all this. And there's probably people of a certain age saying, did this all this actually happen? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, poor Jimmy Cooney, the referee. Uh, Jimmy Cooney, Claire are three points up in a semi-final against Offaly and Jimmy Cooney blows his whistle two minutes early. Do you realise straight away... He's made a huge mistake here. This is early. Well, <coughs> the first thing I realised was I have never seen a referee blown a uh, final whistle in a game. When one of your forwards has the ball, he's going to round his man. And next thing, instead of giving him a chance to shoot a goal or get the ball wide or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. he blows the final whistle. Yeah. That was the first bizarre thing. And Colin Flynn was beside me. And Colin said, there's, there's, two, there's a minute and a half. There's two minutes left. Mm. Uh, uh, Michael, what was his name? The, the, the man in charge of Offaly. Bond. And I said, Michael yeah. Bond, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I said, gee, this is, you know, there was no kind of sense of satisfaction that we got to the Ireland, you know. Yeah. You knew straight away there was something, you know, something strange about this. Now, we, we took it then on, uh, on t- that the game was over, that the referee had yeah. made a mistake. They yeah. were, now, the first time it, it, an inkling of it came to me was we were inside in the dressing room afterwards. And, I mean, there was confusion everywhere. But Sean, the late Sean Kelfeather, who was with the Irish time, he came in. And I said, Sean, what's on? He said, listen, he says, the rule book says a game of two halves each at least 35 minutes. And that was the first time it dawned on me that this could, there's danger here. Mm. You know, that mm. this, something could, there's some, so, something could happen here. Right. Now, we were up upstairs with the Offaly lads afterwards, and Joe Dooley, actually, when he was leading, he says to me, I says, Joshua, you'll give us a replay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we will, Joe, yeah, you know. But little <laughs> did we know, I know, six days later, we were back again. Because Michael Bond, uh, Pilkington and Daly were having a pint, looking at all the Offaly fans sitting on the pitch. Yeah, that's right, we were yeah. upstairs. Yeah, yeah, watching. yeah, yeah. And Bond went over to Pilkington and said don't have too many of those pints tonight because there'll be a replay. And Pilkington said, no, no, no. They yeah. beat us fair and square. We're not doing that. Mm. And of course, that all, yeah. that all yeah. changed. Can I play a clip of Jimmy Cooney? You can, of course. Then we go to the dressing room, then we go in and we're inside and there's silence. We know we're wrong. Then there's some of the security lads come in telling us that the awfully people are out on the pitch and they're digging up the pitch and oh god almighty this is getting worse by the minute then you think you'll have to cause it all this and this is Croke Park and the umpires told me that I didn't tug in for about two hours 
I don't remember that. I remember my wife coming down from the stands and she was eventually let in maybe after about an hour. She was crying, of course. Um, I didn't know I didn't know what state I was in. See, you're crying and, and you're, you're crying because of, of what has happened, but then you're, you're worrying as well as about what is going to happen. Then there's this kind of togging anyway, like put on your clothes, take a shower, togging and... Eventually I did that, but I didn't really want to either. I didn't know what I was really doing, and I just wanted to get home. I knew I had no business in Dublin. Hmm. Well, the strange thing about it was, you see, nobody had anything against uh, Jimmy Coney for, for the mistake. Knew, we knew he had made a mistake. Oh, and, and the other thing was, like, even though the awfully people that play on a crowd did sit on the pitch, nobody held anything against mm. the awfully crowd for doing that either, you know. And when it came to the replay... Um, I mean, we had no, you know, when, 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 like, I still go back to what Sean Kilfeather said, like, you know, when you knew that it was a game of two halves each 35 minutes, well, the second half wasn't 35 minutes. I suppose the question mark there then is there a complete replay or do you go out and play the extra two or three minutes, whatever is in it, you yeah. know? So I, the, the thing that caused me about the replay was that we were promised that Colin Lynch would be back for the replay. I've heard this. Where did you get this impression? Well, you see, there was a meeting the following morning in Croke Park. You know, our fully were there and we were there. I was there representing Clare and I forget, the chairman of our fully, um, I forget, what was he, Ward? I, I forget what his name was. Yeah. He was there. And I said to Pat Fitz, we dropped Pat, Pat Fitzgerald, the county secretary, off at the Cusick stand side of the field. And I said to Pat, there'll be a replay now, I said, under one condition, that we have Colin Lynch back. Okay? And I said, he has missed, he has missed enough now. They've got that pound of flesh. It's time that he was back for the, the replay. So anyway, we went around then to the old Hogan stand, because at that time the new Cusick was there, but the old Hogan was still in it, and into one of these pokey corridors. And the awful lads were there, the chairman and secretary, and we were chatting away, and we were saying, sure, look at it, there's going to be a replay. And that's it. We, you know, we, yeah. why, why, what can we do about it? So anyway, when Pat came back, I said to Pat, is Colin Lynch going to be available? And he said, listen, there's going to be a meeting of some committee, I forget it was, on the Wednesday night, and he's going to be back for the replay. I said, grand, I feel right. we'll go for it. So there was, actually, we went in, Frank Murphy was the chairman of it, and, like, Frank and myself didn't actually see eye to eye very much, <laughs> but, uh, like, there was no discussion on it, there was no dispute about it, mm. you know, we didn't dispute uh, the, the replay and what the rules were. Now, people saying we shouldn't have played, we shouldn't have agreed to play, but <clears throat> my argument there was, like, there was controversy and all that, but how would you... History would judge us very dimly if we had ruined an All-Ireland by not playing. Simple well, as that. I th Anthony Daly says that he said to you in the hotel that night, on the, on the night of the game, where you you said, I think we could be headed for a replay. He said, well, I don't want our All-Ireland tainted anyway, yeah. so let's do it. Actually, I thought him on the door, going into one, he was ringing, I said, you better go easy on that. Yeah. I said, I think that's very like what <laughs> Michael Bond said, I think there's going to be a replay. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. He, no, we, exactly. Not alone are All-Ireland tainted, but... Uh, the name of Clare would be seriously tainted if they had ruined an All-Ireland mm. by giving a team a walkover into the final. You know, history, the history of the game is very, very important. You know, and where you are in the history of the game, I think that, that, that transcended everything. And, you know, yes. we, even with Colin not being back, there was still, when we knew he wasn't going to be back, there was still no question of not playing in that game. And, I mean, the battle Clare put up in that re that, that day below on Turles, yeah. with so many injuries, such exhaustion after such... A, because the season Clare had awfully when he started. Yeah, yeah. Like, we were 
at, at the very, very bottom of the barrel, you know, as regards energy. And, you know, we were, it was the awfully goalie, really, that knocked us out. So it was just, you know, it was a typical display of that team. Mm. We were beaten, we were out, and we just took it and that was it. How much does that goal, you know, how much does that disturb your sleep? Given Not one bit. Really? No. Because, you no. know, the difference between two All-Irelands and one is huge. You get a third and you're on a different tier of greatness. Well, I'll tell you it. now, Joe, when it went to that replay below Antarlis, the one, the team that were most disappointed that Clare didn't win were Kilkenny. Because they would, I think that, Claire, that we wouldn't have enough of energy in an All-Ireland against Kilkenny because right. they too were itching for revenge against Clare after Clare beating them in the semi-final the year before okay. in, in, in Crow Park. I don't think that, I think once it went to Torless, once it went to that replay, and remember now there's a very short gap between that and the final, I don't think we'd have won that. I don't ever look at it as having lost an All-Ireland. Right. No, I wouldn't presume that. Because Dick O'Neill, who was at school with me in, in, in Pats, he was actually a selector uh, with the Kilkenny team. And you knew we met him, we met him actually in the Anor Hotel afterwards. And they were really disappointed that Offaly were in the final. Right, okay. They were, they wanted Clare, you know. They wanted to meet Clare, and they they wanted it to be the team. So, it, people, you know, there's this kind of thing in Ireland that oh, only for we would have, you know, mm. and only for that. I don't that year. We, granted, if we had got through in Crow Park that day, I think we would have won the All Ireland. Matter Kilkenny, but that extra game in Torles, I don't think we had any hope. Okay. Ali Baker was injured. So many fellas were at the end of their energy. It wasn't anything. Fair enough. That's yeah. uh, that's interesting. Uh, just a final point on that group. Then you know, like looking in from afar, say when Anthony Daly was manager at Clare, and you know, there's a there's a spit of words at times between you two, or in your punditry, you have to criticise a Davy team or whatever. Yeah. What's your relationship like with those men? Well, sure. Look at. As every year goes by, my regard for them gets higher and higher. You know, that's the strange thing about something like that, you know. And it's it's not about meeting up with them or having any social events with them, even though I do meet some of them now and again. Yeah. It's just the memory and the regard I have for them, for what they achieved or what they did, you know, and the men they were on the field and how they were prepared to put absolutely everything on the line. First of all, how they could get themselves all right for the big days. Yeah. And then how they could support each other to such a degree you know I have always believed and you know that in when it comes to the big day you know people say about the manager and all that the players your 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 cornerstone players are so central to what happens yeah. you know that uh, and, and the like the energy within the county that they generated the way they got all the people behind them you look back on those five years as five glorious years and it's all they, they all all the years kind of nearly blend into one it's an you era yeah. it's an era yeah. it's an era I remember the very first, the last time then, the next year then, Nicky English was in charge of Tipperary. You know, the, sa- the saga with Tip was still not over. Yes. But, and even though Tip got the better was in 2000, which was only karma as well as was in a way. But yeah. when, when we played Tip the last time, in 19, we had a brilliant game with him below in 99 in, in Parky Keeve and Davy scored a penalty in the last minute. Tip had ran us off the field and we went down on the replay and we eat, we ate him, we, we devoured him. You know, yeah. it was the last brilliant display of that team you know so that last really with me anyway yeah. was that last great display but anyway when we were over now the, the what I have to get from the Tipperary supporters like it was all self-inflicted I realise <laughs> that completely but the slagging they used to give me at the yeah. games you know up and down the sideline was yeah. on, it's all part but it, it, it added so much to the atmosphere of the game but anyway 
When the game was over, I said to Tony Constant, I said, listen, this is coming to an end. I said, we, we'll walk back into town, into Cork. And there's a long way from Parky Keeve into the city centre in Cork, you right. know. So as we were walking along, this is the game would be over an hour and a half this time anyway. We were walking along, coming up along the mall there. Next thing we saw this van with T.S. Tipperary South Park on it, you know. So there were two fellas in the front of it and eating the sandwiches. Game was over. So the minute they saw me coming around the corner, they shot, heads shot up. And I said, they can't say we're in trouble here, <laughs> you know, because you never know with supporters. Yeah, yeah, like, you yeah. know? So anyway, as we came level with the van, your man comes out. He says, hey, look, man, he says. I said, yeah. Any chance of the autograph? You know, it's like that. So I said, no problem. Sure, I will, of course. So <clears throat> I said, uh, he gave me a piece of paper and, and, and while, he was, while he was in it, oh, geez, he said, she'll get some surprise when we go home and I give her this. He was straight like Pat Short or unbelievable. <laughs> so anyway, I said, who is she? I think it was Marie was on it. And so I was I writing to Marie with best wish, you know, the usual thing. Yeah. And I handed it back to him. So when I handed it back to him, he says, geez, where do we go home? And I show her this, he says. And for the first time, he looked up in my face, he says, Christ, he says, you have no idea how she hates you. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was the kind of thing that went on in that era. Yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That, that, the rivalries that was there. Yeah. But funny enough, when you meet temporary people now, they also look back on that era with terrific was, memories and fondness. Like, you know, yeah, yeah that's, it, 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 it was just one of those eras that took on a life of its own, yeah. you know, and is, is remembered for that. Yeah. I asked you about your relationship with the players because I know when you were at Anthony Daly's book launch, he had that great line a year or two ago where he said, as Collins said to Dev, you'll always be my general, which... Um, I think that worked for me. And I think it's more than that as well. You know, you? you know, as time goes on, you know, I always like. Is, e- it, is it love? Even when that said, even when that was said, you know, when, 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 like the way I look at it, Joy, is like you're a player and you do everything you can as a player to try and win. Then you're a manager. You're totally through. You cut yourself off from being a player. You're a manager. You know what? You know you have to look at your managerial in a totally different way as you do as a as a as a player. Yeah. And then when you're a commentator on the game. You have to cut yourself off from all that again. Okay. And you have to give, you know, uh, you, and, and sometimes it has to be very sharp and, you know, people aren't, aren't going to agree with it. Yeah. So it does create for a while a little bit of division. It's like if you're a young lad and you have to, you have to con- con- uh, you know, you have to punish him in some way. Mm. You know, a bit of bad feeling lasts for a while, but I think it all ebbs away as time goes on. And the overall feeling is of massive respect, regard, even as you say, love for yeah. all those fellas, and that's yeah. that's what it, you know. It is something, and what 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 really I think the biggest legacy of all the thing I the thing I like most right winning the All Ireland's Monster Championship was great, but to see the contribution that those fellas have made to the GA since like that, so many of them became managers of the teams, coaches of teams at underage, at club, mm. at county. They became officers in clubs. They are still involved in all those capacities. They've made a massive. I, I would challenge any t- somebody to produce any team whose players or whose panel gave back so much to the sport after winning in All-Ireland yeah. and are still giving back yeah. so much to the sport. Yeah. You know, that, that, that to me, that gives me the greatest satisfaction of all to see them doing that. Yeah. A question I wanted to ask you, and I've taken up too much of your time already, I appreciate. When you give that sharp criticism, when you say Cody's selfish for staying on or when you say, there was a, there was a funny quote I'd seen about a couple of years ago, Offaly players are the only players who still have fat legs and fat arses and fat bellies or... When you say something in the Star or wherever or in the RT studio which gets that reaction and always oh, gone over the top, uh, do you feel regret the next morning? Do you think, oh, Jer, 
are you an awful leader getting involved in this stuff or what do you think? Well, I'll tell you now, I never regard it as over the top. I never say anything over, you know, people might regard what I say as over the top, but I regard it as cutting out all of the, the, the you know, civilities and yeah. saying exactly this is what the problem is. Well, that's the is, point. It's your, yeah. it's your language which is so, yes. you're not dressing it up. No. You but so many people dress it up and it's disguised in all of this flowery language. You know, I have no time for that. You right. know, sport, you like your accommodation on the sport, <coughs> like other people who are going to the game can have all the flowery language like, but if you are commentating the sport, you give exactly what you think is the current state of yeah. affairs. You know, now, oftentimes, you know, you'd have to say this, oftentimes what you say or what you write is edited down and phrases or sentences are taken out of it. And in isolation, they look much more severe than they would within the article you wrote or the thing you said. Because with Ollie Cannon on, it was last year I was speaking to him and the phrase was Galway are gutless. You know, and the yeah. gutless word was the big one or no yeah. guts yeah. and of course yeah. he's livid about that and yes. maybe he has a right to be but it's your opinion. You could have said a different word. Yes, and yet yeah. it's in, but it's interesting to get your perspective that well, what's see, the point in dressing up no goods? No, no, that's the language of, we'll say, you know, uh, I suppose the language I use is the language of supporters used when they're talking to each other. Correct. Rather than a language that's dressed up in a different way for public consumption. So you, you know? believe when it's public discourse, what's the value in dressing well, up? Well, that is the thing, like, you know, that I am not a journalist or I am not somebody who's, who is beholden to anybody in any way. You mm. know, I am just in there in isolation and I give my thing as it is. Now, the reaction to it is not something that I ever, ever pay any heed to. You know, really? you know people yeah. think that, oh, do you regret the following day? I don't, I, I you know... I never watch myself on television. Right. I never listen to myself on the radio. <laughs> this is an absolute fact now. Right. I, 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 and, a, and once I have an article written, I would never read it over again, you okay. know, as it appears in the paper. Or if somebody, if I come to a newspaper and there's something in it about me, I'll just brush it over. I just go away from it completely. Right. I, I, so what he said about me afterwards, and I know in social media and all that there's plenty of comment, but it uh, wouldn't deter me from saying something similar in a similar situation again. Right. You know, that is just my way of, of, of commentating or commenting on games. You no, know. Clearly, it yeah. is, I suppose it is a bit to the bone and people do take uh, exception to it. But then if people criticise me, I don't take it personal. Okay. I don't, you know, I have nothing against anybody that ever said anything against me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just my way of communicating what I think. Hey, listen, I find it more interesting than, uh, <laughs> than you dressing it up. Uh, genuinely, the last point, mentioned a canning there in Galway. Was the chemistry just not right? Why, why didn't Galway work for you? No, it never took off from the time. I suppose it, it got off to a very, very bad start in that... I just came, I had just come in, and then you had the big controversy between Portumna and Lockway, yeah. you know, with uh, the, cannings. Uh, the cannings and all of that kind of stuff. So it it, it started out on a very bad uh, bad footing, and we progr- I just never got the feel, you know. Right. I, I suppose anyone will tell you when 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 you go into a place, you know, you look at all the American managers and different sports. They'll always say some places your play, your face doesn't doesn't fit, right. you know, and definitely. I just never got the feel in in Galway that I got here in Clare or that I got with other teams, un, even underage teams I trained. You'd get a feel and you'd say, I, you know, you'd do anything for these fellas. Right. They were always at arm's length, you know. And Galway, you, you couldn't bridge it? No, 
No. It's as simple as that. Yeah. I couldn't bridge it. Now, I, I suppose I was looking for the same kind of leaders as I had, you know, and always with teams, you know, whatever team I take over, even at underage teams, under 12 and 14, I'd always be looking for who were the leaders. Mm. And they were my men, mm. you know, to control things in the dressing room yeah. and to set the, to set the, to set the standard. I just couldn't find... Your generals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just couldn't get... Now, they could have been there, but I just never... They just never clicked with me. They weren't my type of people, in, in other words, yeah. you know. So, it, it's just something that didn't work, and that's the way, that's the way it yeah, goes. Yeah, it's a difficult one to get over. Cause I, and I read it from afar. It was, you know, Greg Kennedy and the Cannings, and, yeah. like, so, yeah. you know, there's the clash in the county final, and... I well, mean, you see... I, it struck me that that could have been resolved, though. Joe, you don't understand that Galway is unique, I would think, in, inter, in, its, in the level of its interclub rivalries. You know, I have never, you know, travelling right. around the country, I have never seen a county where the, the inter-club inter rivalries are just so bitter, you know. Mm. And I should have known better because I remember uh, being up in, with Clare up in Galway. When I was a manager, uh, we were up playing a, a challenge match against Galway. And one of their teams, I think it was, it was the, the Cooney's team, actually, Southwest yeah. were in the All-Ireland final. And one of the officers of the county board, uh, the Galway board was there, and I suppose I, suppose, I said to him, it was the day before the, the club final, so it was obviously, it might have been a league match now. But I said, I suppose you'll be all off the Crow Park tomorrow, I says. <coughs> oh, he says, we will not, he says. Mm, right. All of it is, he says, don't be to shout for Southfields. And he was an officer on the county board. You know, right. So, <laughs> okay. So that's the level of so of. It's, it's, uh, it wasn't yeah. as simple as get the cannons and no, Kennedy in oh the no, room and no, no, out. no, 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 right. no. It's not as simple as that at all. I, mm. you know, and I didn't understand it, yeah. and I could never, as you say, I couldn't just couldn't bridge it. I couldn't get tuned into it properly. Yeah. So it just didn't work. Yeah, chemistry's a mad thing. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. Listen, I've taken up too much of your time. What a pleasure to have like watched your career from afar and get to listen to all these stories now. So. Uh, it sounds like a life well lived, I have to say, Jer. Well, it was enjoyed. Yeah. You know, it's something that we are that that I really, really enjoyed. It, it's not something I do well now. You know, just with something like this, the memories come flooding back yeah. as you talk. You yeah. know, but yeah. it's not something I would revisit every day or anything else like that. But it is something that I'm. It, it is just there's a huge sense of fulfilment, I suppose out of having had a career like that, both as a player, as a player and as a manager. You know, it was, re you know, I loved playing for Clare. I played for 15 years at senior level for Clare and I loved every, every bit of it. And uh, I suppose the managerial thing then really, really crowned it. And I was so lucky, like, to come on at a, at a time when, as you say, that chemistry was right. But it yeah. was right because there were so many great, uh, so many lads of great character there. And at the end of my of my club career, you know, something similar happened when I was in with, with Fetal. I, I I was living in Shannon. I had played with Shannon. I went back for one year with Fetal, and we won the county championship after a gap of forty four or five years. That is so. Both my careers wow. in the you know are, are in the managerial career and in the club career, you know, I had a fantastic innings and really really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Manjo. OTB Gold. The very best of Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation.